following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Welcome this evening. All right. Welcome tonight to Fellowship Bible Church. We should be online, I think, uh, live streaming here, and we are live here in this building as well. Looking forward to our brother Jansen uh, preaching. And uh, the young people, looks like there's a good little crowd of you out there to uh, do Truth Trackers tonight. So we're looking forward to you getting that ministry in. I would like to read the scriptures this uh, night, and that is going to be in Isaiah 34, just picking up where we were before. And uh, we'll read that, and then we're going to let the young people uh, run upstairs. You want to go now or after the scripture reading? You want to go now or after the scripture reading? Okay, you're going to stay then, since I'm not getting any clear signals. You're going to stay for the scripture reading. (laughs) All right. Isaiah 34. Come near, you nations, to hear and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. And their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Ooh, maybe we should have had the kids go out, huh? (laughs) All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom, and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Obviously, we're talking about God's judgment on all the nations, which was the subject actually in 33 as well as in this chapter 34, although there's some confusion in terms of the headings in your Bible about impending judgment on Zion, and that's a matter for further study. Uh, as continuing in verse 6, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Verse 7, the wild oxen shall come down with them, the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing." And thorns shall come up in its places, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Did you know there were all these animals in the Bible? Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, there the, the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read, Not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate. 
For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Obviously, the focus here on Basra and Edom, but the animals there are going to make their habitation there because it will be abandoned by humans. Obviously, that's the the message of that. All right. May God bless that reading of his word. We're going to let you young people head on upstairs for your time in the Word, time to go on up and uh, memorize or recite your memorized verses, okay? And then, once they make their way out, we're going to invite Jansen to come up and share with us what he has prepared. This has been cooking in his brain for a while, so I'm looking forward to see what God has shown him in his study. All right, let's join Jansen in looking into the Word of God. Amen. Well, good evening to those who are now just joining us on the, the live stream. We welcome you this evening into our study of God's Word tonight. And uh, I'll say this, I was a little concerned of the time span in which I'm going to have to talk tonight, uh, not because I haven't done it before, but because I was afflicted this week with some sickness and uh, Pastor and Darius can attest that on our Thursday night Bible study, I was in no shape or form ready to talk. And uh, I've never been a bass singer, but I could have sang some bass that night. Um, and so I've been able to rest my voice. But then after singing Wonderful Grace of Jesus, I don't know anymore. I think I, I may not reach the end, but we'll see. Um, in fact, uh, would there be a kind soul out there that would be willing to get me a cup of water? Thank you. I may need that here soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, your copies there that you have, to the book of Ruth. This is a study that um, has only begun. Uh, and last time we. We did more of a, a formal overview of the book of Ruth, looking more actually at some introductory material uh, to the book of Ruth. And uh, thank you. We looked at some of the historical setting of the book of Ruth and considered the time frame in which the events may have taken place. Some of that is somewhat detailed uh, or explained exposed in the beginning of Ruth, but some of the details are left out, so we kind of have to uh, guess somewhat to the, the specific time frame in which these events took place. We looked at some of the cultural, the cultural setting of the book of Ruth, as well as the literary background to the book of Ruth. It's a narrative, a short story. We could kind of uh, uh, characterize it by or as And in doing so, we touched also on the purpose for which the book of Ruth was written. What is the intentionality behind the book of Ruth? Why is this narrative, yet actual real historical event recorded? And uh, what purpose does it play in the storyline of the Old Testament, specifically the storyline of the nation of Israel? We concluded that it is very possible that that Ruth was written sometime around Solomon's reign, 
seems to be likely that that is the case. And um, therefore, a primary purpose that this historical account may have been written was to exalt King David by detailing the story of his lineage and how God has preserved it. And so this is, in my mind, the primary or most likely purpose that the author has written this book and recorded this historical narrative, again, to exalt King David by telling the beautiful story of his roots by which God preserved his lineage through what we may think or they may have thought were humanly unanticipated means. And in doing so, as the author unravels this theme and purpose, uh, he will also introduce other themes as well and in the process of developing this primary purpose. And one of those other themes that we mentioned last time is the idea that the author is presenting a personal narrative looking into the life of Naomi from a life of emptiness to fullness. Or maybe we could say from fullness to emptiness and back to fullness. From this literary perspective, we recognize that in the book of Ruth there is this development of emptiness to fullness. From the onset, we see that Naomi, much like the person Job, is emptied of practically everything that she had, or everything meaningful that she had, that is. But in the end, she experiences complete filling and fulfillment through her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is honored among the women of the city, and has a good reputation, much like the Proverbs 31 wife. A woman who fears God and bears Naomi another son whom she can care for, and we see this in the end of Ruth in chapter 4. But this evening, as we look into the actual text, I want to draw our attention to the first 14 verses of chapter 1. And here we see the crisis for the Davidic line. That's the title of my message, but also the main point of our message this evening is the crisis for the Davidic line. Let me read for you just from the first few verses of Ruth chapter 1. And as we see this account, this account unfold here. In verse 1, we see it written, Now it came to pass... In the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now, as we look at these first five verses, we see the setting of the crisis, the setting of the crisis. 
we see that the events of Ruth are precipitated by a famine in the land of Judah and Israel. And apparently, again, it wasn't just an issue in Bethlehem, but throughout all the land of Israel. This is a localized famine throughout all of Israel. Otherwise, it seems that Elimelech may have just taken his family to another city had there been uh, opportunity for food for them. But he didn't. He had, to, he had to travel a far distance away from Bethlehem to find food. Now, the cause of the famine goes unmentioned by the author here. He just simply says there was a famine in the land. And from a uh, scientific or just a normal perspective on this, it, it could be that uh, there was just a simply a, a lack of rain. Rain was a critical component for the growth of the crops, a largely agricultural uh, society there. And drought, of course, would have caused a famine that may have lasted for years before they could have recovered from such a uh, disastrous natural cause. However, from a theological perspective, there may be more to this than what's mentioned. This famine may be explained as a judgmental act of God. According to the covenant agreement between God and his people, if God's people would go after other gods and to worship them, to, to uh, turn away from the Lord God, from Yahweh, and to seek after these other gods and persist in rebelling against the Lord, he would respond by sending nations against them to judge them. His anger would burn hot against them, sending against Israel nations from the surrounding regions to devastate them, and, also, and often that would follow in, in devastation of crops and cities and famine in the land. We see one instance of this, though there are many, in Judges, in Judges chapter 6. And let me recall again to your mind that the author has already told us that these events take place during the time when the judges ruled. And so it is very likely that this was a judgmental act of God that is the cause for this famine. But let me turn your attention just for a moment to Judges chapter 6, where we see one instance of God's anger burning against the people for their disobedience, for turning away from the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says in Judges, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Look at verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here's one example of many that you would see 
in the time of the judges where Israel was being punished for their evil doing. Last time we mentioned there was kind of a cyclical pattern of the judges that would take place in which uh, the people of Israel would disobey, they would turn from the Lord, God would send a nation to judge them, the people then would be impoverished, as here we see in this passage, they would recognize their fault, they would cry out to God, and God would send a judge who would deliver them from the hand of their oppressor. And there would be a time of peace in the land before uh, the people of Israel would once again turn from the Lord and do evil. Now notice for a moment, and I'm just kind of recognizing this too, uh, it's interesting the correlation of years or the length of years here that uh, the Midianites uh, prevailed in Israel. We see here that they did so for seven years in verse 1. And uh, back in Ruth chapter 1, we see that they dwelt there about 10 years. And uh, you may wonder, why, why 10 years? Well, uh, it's likely that many of these nations, uh, when they came in and devastated the land, were not there for a time and left. They came in, they destroyed, they dwelt, and it was a time or many years before uh, they would be delivered from the hand of their oppressor. And so that's most likely the case here. The reason for the 10 years is that uh, there just wasn't um, a judge, there wasn't uh, to deliver them until that time had expired, those 10 years. As you turn back to Ruth chapter 1, we see a very personal experience here, the personal consequences of the people of Israel's disobedience. Often when we read passages like this in Judges chapter 6, we think of it on a national level, that the people of Israel are facing God's judgment. But of course, as it's obvious, the nation is made up of individual people, of families who are directly experiencing God's punishment. And here's one instance of a personal uh, example here, where Elimelech and his family are facing the consequences of Israel's disobedience to the Lord. Now, we don't know much about the man Elimelech, and it may even be that his faith in Yahweh is not as strong as perhaps we think it to be when we think of this story, this narrative. And uh, there's reasons for which I say this, and that is this. If Elimelech knew that God had promised that if his people were to call out upon God, calling out for mercy and repenting of their sin, the reason for which they were experiencing God's judgment, God's anger would turn away and his blessing would flow. So why would Elimelech not stay then in the nation of Israel and call out upon God for mercy and repent? Or, if it's not him particularly, which was needing to repent, though don't we all need to consistently? Why not stay and urge his fellow Israelites to repent of their sin? Why not be a prophet, so to speak, 
in his own land and call the people to repent of their sins and remind them that if they were to do so, God would restore the land to them and cause them to prosper. That causes me to believe that perhaps Elimelech was doubting God's promise of blessing and only saw God for his retributive actions. He only saw God in light of his retributive actions. It seems that instead of trusting God, Elimelech had devised his own solution to the problem. Perhaps there's times in our lives where we want to avoid the stark uh, reality that we need to confront sin in our lives. And instead, we try to avoid it at all costs, either trying to excuse it or run away from it. We'd rather go somewhere else and have to suffer outside of, in Elimelech's case, God's promised land, than have to endure God's chastening for a time. And so that is my call to us this evening, one challenge. Are you trying to run away to devise your own way, a solution to get yourself out of a mess? Or are you willing to be under the hand of God's, God's chastening hand, yet for time, though it is for our good, if we were to turn to him and repent? So I believe that perhaps in Elimelech's case, he was trusting in his own devised plans instead of trusting in God. Nevertheless, we see God would use what may have even been an act of distrust, distrust on Elimelech's case to fulfill his divine plan. We know that man's decisions never thwart God's work. Even a heart of disbelief, of doubt, of Unfaithfulness will never thwart God's work. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life, where you believe that uh, you are an unusable vessel in God's hand because of a mistake you've made, a decision you've made that you you uh, look back upon and you recognize that was not of uh, something God would have wanted me to do, but nevertheless, God's plans are never thwarted by that action. His plans continue. We see now, picking up in verse 2, it says, The name of the man was Elimelech. The, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites, that's generally referring to the region of around Bethlehem. And they were there in Bethlehem of Judah. As we've noted, they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And now we see an unfortunate turn of events. In verse 3, it says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. What an unexpected turn of events leaving a widow and her two sons in a foreign land, far from home, far from her, her people, 
from the comfortableness of the promised land in a foreign land without a husband. This is the first of Naomi's losses that we see. Imagine the feelings of Naomi, who has lost the security of her husband. She's in a foreign land, having to provide, though hopefully her sons seems were of age to help in that, but still, she being the mother of these two sons, not knowing when she would be able to return to Judah, knowing that, as we referenced last time, that Moab was not necessarily a friendly nation of Israel. The dangers of that piled upon everything else. We'll see in a moment that Naomi cries out to the Lord and seems to, seems to be quite upset with how God has dwelt, dealt with her. But before we judge those kind of words or that character too quickly, we have to put ourselves in her shoes as well. Why has God dwelt with her? Or why has God dwelt, dealt with me in this way? Why has he caused me to lose what is most valuable to me? Job had similar feelings. We talked about him for a moment already. Job lost his sons, his daughters, though not his wife, but all his belongings. And similarly, we see Job cry out to God, even in seemingly anger at one point, wanting to take God to court, so to speak, to ask him why is he being afflicted for upon him for these things. Now, while in Moab, we see Naomi's sons find for themselves wives from Moab. We see this in verse 4. It says, Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. Now, this may cause you to think for a moment. Wait a minute. How does this uh, correspond to God's earlier command to specifically the people of Israel. How are these marriages to Moabites to be evaluated from a Mosaic covenant perspective? Well, these marriages must be interpreted in light of what the Mosaic prohibitions against marriages with pagans was. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me turn your attention there for a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we see these, this command or this prohibition. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. 
I might pause here for a second and call your attention to the fact that the people of Israel did not obey that command. They did not obey and utterly destroy them. We see instances of that in, uh, when Joshua leads the people into Israel. And now they're feeling the effects of their disobedience as these nations have grown once again and are oppressing them. Middle of verse 2, You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. And here another prohibition in verse 3, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me, to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them and you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. Verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So in light of this prohibition, we see here in Ruth chapter 1 that uh, the two sons of Naomi seemingly disobeyed God's command. Now, you may question uh, me or question that, that opinion on this passage saying, wait a minute, I don't see the name Moab or Moabites listed in that Deuteronomy chapter 7 passage. However, although the passage doesn't specifically mention Moabites, there is still a case to be made that since they were a people of a different god, Chemosh, the spirit of the law stands. They were not to give their sons or or take a daughter for their sons of a nation who worshipped another god. That was the whole reason that they were not to do this. That was the whole reason for the prohibition, was to keep them from intermingling with foreign, uh, foreign gods, to cause, them to, to cause their hearts to turn from, the, from Yahweh to worship other gods. And so the spirit of the law stands even for the Moabites. To marry a non-Israelite was breaking God's law. Now, we continue here in verse 5. Here, another turn of events, unexpected, of course, by Naomi and by both Orpah and Ruth. says in verse 5, Then both Malon and Kilian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. We don't know the causes for the death of Naomi's son. Some have surmised by the meaning of their names, which have to do with being sickly or coming to an end, that perhaps uh, they were either sickly ones from the beginning uh, or, uh, or maybe perhaps a somewhat prophetic nature of a short life. Uh, but again, we don't know exactly the cause for the death. The author doesn't mention it here. And that's not the author's purpose. Again, we need to call, call our minds back to what is the purpose and theme 
for which the author is writing. And here even we see that it continually draws our attention back in this specific passage, immediate context, to Naomi. Remember back in verse 3, it says, After Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, that she, Naomi, was left her two sons, causing our attention to draw back to Naomi. And again here in verse 5, he says, So the woman, he doesn't say women, which would we surmise would include Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, just woman, Naomi survived her two sons and her husband. And so grief upon grief is piling up upon Naomi as now she has not only been torn from her land to sojourn in a place not her own, but she has now lost the security of her husband who would provide for her and keep her safe, but also the security that came from her two sons, leaving her vulnerable in a nation not her own. We continue looking at this crisis that is continually building and compiling and compounding upon itself here, not looking very bright and hopeful, is it, for this family, and specifically, as we draw to mind the theme, the Davidic line, how is God going to preserve this lineage? Well, we see in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 1, it says, Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. There seems to be a, a slight glimmer, a gleam, a horizon, the sun rising on the horizon for Naomi here. God has been merciful to his people. What is the cause for God visiting his people? Perhaps it's thinking of judges, it's that the people had finally turned to him. After God has chastened them for a while, perhaps this ten years or so of time, the people have finally got it together and recognize that their hearts are wicked and they have done evil in God's sight. And finally, with a repentant heart, they turn to God and God hears their voice. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God will hear our prayers. For the people of Israel, a comfort it would be that God's eyes would once again turn to his people and he would provide them with bread. Just like he provided them with manna in the desert, in the wilderness, provided them with water, all along the storyline of Israel is that God provides for his people and he is merciful. And so we expect nothing less here in this passage than that God would once again be merciful, and provide for his people. And so, with perhaps a glimmer of hope, Naomi arises. It says she arose. She takes action with her daughters-in-law and goes to return from the country of Moab. 
In verse 7, it says, Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So she arose and she went. She trusted that God's hand had provided for her people, and she once again was going to return to her homeland, to Judah, where she would find seemingly help from her, perhaps either relatives or fellow Israelites. Though having gone out full with family, she would return barren. So she returns with her daughters-in-law, both Orpah and Naomi. It seems, or we know from the immediate context, that they do follow her for a time. At least one of them does, or both of them for a time, in this journey. Perhaps it was just for the sake of safety that they did this, caring for Naomi. We see that there seems to be a somewhat intimate relationship here between these daughter-in-laws and their mother-in-law. Perhaps there could be a whole message on that, couldn't there? The relationship of a mother-in-law. <laughs> but nevertheless, we see here there is an intimacy between these ladies. And so they, they went with Naomi for a time, returning to the land of Judah. And then in verse 8, we see this. We see the attitude and the, really the character of Naomi, the tenderness and the great concern that she has for her daughters-in-law. It says in verse 8, And Naomi said to them, to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. Naomi had no expectation that they would follow her back to Judah. Perhaps, as we'll see in the immediate or the following verses, she knew that for them to follow her would be somewhat of a senseless action and plan for them. And in thinking that way, we see the character of Naomi, that she truly had a concern and care for these two, Orpah and Ruth. She wasn't there thinking selfishly of how she could benefit from perhaps their provision for her, and just the sense of security that they would provide in the remainder of their journey and once they return. But instead, she, she implores them to go and return each to her mother's house. Now, something interesting that I found in my study that oftentimes uh, in cases of a daughter returning that has been widowed, uh, returning to her home, it would also it often be a command to return to her father's house, her father's house. And that makes sense because we know that, uh, well, the father, at least in our context or our um, society and similar then, that uh, the father is the one who has the heart and the hand and the security of the daughter. He is he is over her. He is her protector and provider. And in marriage, then, that protection and that provision, is that responsibility is given into the hand of the husband. But in the case of uh, a husband dying, 
that responsibility is, in, in, in a sense, handed back to the Father. And so most of the time in the Old Testament, uh, we see that it's often referenced that the daughter is returning to the father's home for that reason. But Naomi doesn't say that. And I believe that the reason that she doesn't is um, going to be expounded upon as we see the rest of this discourse. But I'll, I'll clue you into this, uh, the reason, and that is that Naomi is thinking of uh, the idea that if sh- these daughters were to return to their mother's home, that they would find husbands in their homeland. And oftentimes the idea of returning to a mother's home had to do with that idea of cultivating another relationship with another man. So you would return to your mother's your home with the intention of finding the security in another man, but not the father. Yeah, do you track with me? So you're not returning her to the responsibility of the father, but only for a short time to the mother's home until she found a man that would carry on those responsibilities for her. And so that is Naomi's hope for her daughters-in-law, that they would go to their mother's home and they would find security from another husband. Naomi continues in this discourse, and she tells them in the middle of verse 8, The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt, dealt with the dead and with me. With the dead, we know of here, is of course referring to Naomi's two sons, the way in which they dealt with their husbands, the way in which they were seemingly affectionate towards their husbands, good wives to her sons, being good spouses, good help meets to them. And so Naomi blesses them in a sense, pleading or imploring the Lord to deal kindly with these two ladies in the same way that they have kindly dealt with Naomi and with their husbands. She also implores and calls out to the Lord and asks this blessing from the Lord upon them in verse 9, saying, The Lord grant that you may find rest, here it is, each in the house of her husband. Again, we see Naomi's hopes here is that they would return to their mother's homes only to find rest in another man's protection and security. And so, again, as I called your attention to earlier, we see the true tenderness and kindness and selflessness of Naomi here as she's caring for the lives, the the security, the protection, the provision, and the fruitfulness, really, of her daughters-in-law. Her hopes was not for them to follow her with the likelihood that they would not find rest with another man, that they would not uh, have offspring. And so she calls calls them to return to their homeland. 
middle of verse 9. So it says, after she, she implores them to do this and calls for God's blessing upon that endeavor, she says, so she kissed them, and, li- and they lifted up their voices and wept. Here we see another instance or another reflection upon the intimacy between these ones here. There is a true connection here between Orpah and Ruth and Naomi. They were not willing to return or wanting to return because of the security and the care and the affection that they had for their mother-in-law. And so they raised their voices and wept at this idea. Verse 10, and they said to her, in return to her, her command or her exhortation, surely we will return with you and to your people. We see here that their desire was not to return to their people, but return with her to her people, to Naomi's people, to Israel. In verse 11, it says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Naomi's tried once. She's exhorted them. She's encouraged them as their mother-in-law to go back to their homeland. And they, they uh, contradict or they, they seemingly uh, oppose that idea, wanting to go with her. And so a second time she exhorts them to return, calling them her daughters, And she asks them this question, and going back to the idea of how sensible would it be, Orpah, Ruth, for you to return to me? Let me me draw your attention, Orpah and Ruth, to why it would be senseless to return. Why would you go with me? And here is her reasoning for why it would be a senseless action. She says in verse 11, Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Here's her first argument. Why, why would you return? Perhaps they thought that uh, Naomi would still bear sons and that they would be her, their husbands. But Naomi, uh, assuming that that was the mindset of these daughters, says this is a, a senseless or a senseless thought, a senseless reasoning to return with me. If we uh, think about the age in which Naomi may have been at that time, we know that um, we could surmise perhaps that she got married any time between the age of even 15 and 20, knowing that some got married quite young at that age. And then we know that uh, they lived, uh, and then we, there are a time for the sons to be born and to be grown. And then they were in Moab for 10 years, and uh, then the young men were of age to be married. So now we're thinking 30, 35, 40 years, perhaps, uh, or even more for, for Naomi, perhaps closer to 50 years old. And so uh, in that day and age, that is the, perhaps the life expectancy or close to of, of a woman or, or a man at that age. And of course, way beyond childbearing days, 
for her. And so she, she uh, counter-argues this kind of mindset that perhaps they're thinking that they would go with her so that she would bear more sons and they would take them as their husbands. So again, in verse 12, she, for the third time, implores them to turn back. My daughter, she says, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if Naomi, even if they were to return with Naomi, she's still a widow. She would still have to find a husband before she could even bear another son or sons. And of course, that would uh, take a time to, to do that and to find a husband and to even be uh, taken in marriage and to conceive a child. And then even to compound upon the senselessness of this kind of reasoning, she says this, if I should, in verse 12, if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Of course, the answer is that's unlikely. At that point, uh, both Orpah and Ruth would be older in age and perhaps beyond age of being able to bear children. And even if, even if not, would they really wait 15, 20 years patiently withholding their affection just for them? And, or would they find another husband in the meanwhile to be taken in marriage? So Naomi calls out the unreasonableness of returning with her compounding one argument upon the other. Verse 13, would you wait for them till they were grown? Here it is. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands, finding another husband in the meantime? Of course not. It seems unlikely. And that's the case in Naomi's mind as well. She says, no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. see two things here at the end of this verse, both that, again, there is a great tenderness and care that Naomi has for these two. She doesn't draw, at least at first, the attention to herself, that she's grieved for her own sake, that God has seemingly done this to her. She's grieved for their sake. She's grieved for their loss, that God has taken away from them their husbands. But we also see here at the end of verse 13 that she believes that God has dealt with her in a retributive or judgmental way. That perhaps God is judging her for something that she has done or that perhaps her family has done. Often or most times when we see the hand of the Lord coming out against someone, it's not in his provisionary way. It's his hand of judgment. His hand of judgment to chasten someone, to punish them. Perhaps now that she looks back at the actions that her husband has chosen to take to lead his people out of Moab, you almost wonder if she's considering, is this God's form of personal judgment against my family for not trusting the Lord and staying in Israel? Perhaps that isn't the case, but either way, 
Naomi seemingly believes that God's hand has personally gone out against her, specifically. And then in verse 14, once again, they, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Perhaps the reality, at least we know for one of them, set in that it would be somewhat and quite unreasonable to return. There would be little value in doing so. But they were still torn, nonetheless, to leave their mother-in-law. Here is, though, the beginning of a divide that takes place and where Elimelech has vanished in the storyline Naomi has arisen to attention, but now one more character begins to arise to the surface of this narrative, which will carry through the rest of the book, and that is the actions and the life of Ruth. We see in verse 14, it says, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We know in this case that Orpah decided to return. She had considered Naomi's argument, the unreasonableness of returning, and so she, though in great grief, kissed her and left and went her way back to Moab. We don't know what happened to her. The author doesn't seem that it's fitting to include those details here. But... Um, we do know she returned. But here it is at the end of verse 14. It says, Ruth clung to her. And we'll see here next time, we've ran out of time, but that Ruth and Naomi's relationship only continues to blossom. And God uses this young woman, Ruth, a Moabite, to preserve the line of David in what we have said earlier as a unhumanly or humanly unpredictable manner. When a young woman decides to return with her mother-in-law to the land which God has once again blessed and will bless through the lineage of Ruth, even to David and even to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had. We thank you for your word. Lord, what a, what a refreshment it is to look into these stories, but not just a story as perhaps we, we use that term today. It's a true historical event, a detailed event of how God is continually at work where his plans are never thwarted, never changed, never uh, upset by the decisions of men, but God in his divine justice and mercy and faithfulness continues to keep his promise to the people of Israel and also blesses the nations as well as we see through our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for those many promises and how you have kept them through the ages. Lord, may we learn from the study. May we learn to be tender and
caring and kind like the person Naomi. And may we learn to be bold in our faith and trust in you and in your mercy as well. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for those who have joined us online. We bid you adieu and pray that the Lord will bless you this week as you go your way. Hope that you can join us again Wednesday evening for a time of prayer, a sweet hour of prayer that I enjoy every week, and uh, I know you would enjoy as well. And uh, I hope you can enjoy a few minutes of fellowship this evening, enjoy the fact that there's still some daylight outside uh, now that we've experienced daylight savings time and uh, and the warmer weather as well. All right, thank you guys, and uh, have a good night.